your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington. Don't put your daughter on the stage. The profession is overcrowded and the struggle's pretty tough. And admitting the fact she's burning to act, that isn't quite enough. She has nice hands to give the wretched girl her due, but don't you think her bust is too developed for her age? I repeat, Mrs. Worthington, sweet Mrs. Worthington, don't put your daughter on the stage. Hello and welcome to Profiles. I'm Murray McGibbon. Today we have the opportunity of speaking to a professional actress from the West End of London. She is Sandra Duncan, who's been acting in a production for IU's Department of Theatre and Drama. Sandy, welcome to Profiles. Thank you very much. You've had a long and distinguished acting career all over the world. (laughs) What brought you to Bloomington? Uh, You did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was phoned by you in February of this year to ask if I would be A, available, and B, interested in coming to play the part of Judith Bliss in Hay Fever by Noel Coward uh, to work with graduates and uh, uh, not-so-graduate students in the cast. And I said, yes, yes, yes. And so some months later, here I am, and it's um, it's all been an absolute delight, and I've loved every minute of it. Well, it's certainly been wonderful for us to have you. But let's get back to the beginning. So you're seven years old, mm-hmm. and you announced to your parents that you want to become an actress. Yes. Clearly, they didn't pay any attention to Noel Coward's advice to Mrs. Worthington <laughs> not to put her daughter on this stage. That's so right. tell us what happened. Oh, I was playing Ratty in a school production of Wind in the Willows, and um, I thought it felt like rather fun. And I went home that day and announced to my parents that I wanted to be an actress. And they said, don't be so silly, you can't possibly know at the age of seven what you want to be. And I said, yes, I do, I do. And we struck a bargain that if I got to the age of 14 and I still felt the same, that they would do everything in their power to help me and to find out what was the best way to go about it. So at the age of 14, I was sent to a stage school which was combined your academic work in the morning with your dance and drama and music in the afternoon. And although the dance and drama and music was fabulous and I loved it, the academic work was so far behind what I was doing at my own school that with great prescience... I went back and announced to my parents that um, I didn't think it was a terribly good idea that I stayed there because I'd never get any qualifications educationally that way. So I'd rather stay at my own school. So that's what I did, and I upped all my dance and drama and elocution commitments. And at the age of 17, uh, my parents, having chased around and, and dug up various contacts that they knew, because I don't come from a theatrical family at all, I went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, which was quite a a thing in those days because there were approximately 3,000 people that auditioned for that particular intake and they took 10 men and six women. And I was the youngest student that they had taken on, I think, since the, the 30s, something like that. And I was very much the baby of the class, as I'm now informed by um, classmates of mine who felt very protective of me at the time. (laughs) And I was there for two and a half years, seven terms, and it was very, very intense. Now it is a three-year course. It is the full three years and is affiliated to a university. But then it was a drama school, and it was a very, very formal drama education in that you concentrated a lot on technique. There were three hours of voice and speech in the mornings, for example. 
before you even approached a text in the afternoon. And of course, there was dance, there was there were period movement, there were style classes, there were etiquette classes, fencing, comedy timing, technique, all sorts of things. And we all had to do stage management, of course, as well. So at the end of seven terms, I emerged from that process with no confidence whatsoever and was amazed when I got my first job, which happened to be in a long-running television series in England called Coronation Street, which is famous worldwide, I would guess. And I was in that for three weeks um, at the princely sum of £90 a week, which in those days was seemed like a small fortune. I then went from that into repertory, and where I spent the first rep I was in, I spent a year and a half there, and it was just invaluable, invaluable training because you just got to play anything and everything. Can you explain the repertory system in England as it existed? Well, then? in the, at those days, every small, uh, every town or city had its own theatre company, and it was a very important and vital part of the community. Sadly, now, they don't exist. Yes, there are regional theatres all up and down the country, but they don't have a company that they carry for a year, or in my case, 18 months. Uh, They will cast from play to play. So there isn't that same, A, sense of ensemble that we had, and there isn't, I don't think, for the community, the sense of identity with their own theatre company. And when you're in one place for a long time, you do become part of that community and you are recognised outside of the theatre as contributing to the community. And for that reason, it's a great sadness that it doesn't exist anymore. And of course, as a a training ground for young actors and actresses, it, it was invaluable because you could make your mistakes out of town, out of London, and nobody would see them. And my goodness, there were some walloping mistakes. In well, was case. it a sort of professional training, finishing school in a way for well, actors? Well, yes, I suppose you could call it that. But but you were you were working in front of the public six nights a week and honing your craft. But having said that, I didn't begin to start learning how to hone my craft until I got out of drama school, because all the information that they pack into in those seven terms, it's impossible to process it all in that time. So the the name of the game really is to sift out and select what is best for you and what works for you. So therefore, when you get out into the profession, you're then thrown in at the deep end and you literally sink or swim and it's in in those days it was very very dependent on the directors that you were working with and also the company that you were working with there were some wonderful directors and actors and actresses that I worked with in those early days who were very very formative for me and and did act as sort of mentors for me and that I found wonderful and I in fact altogether did about four years in various repertory companies around the country, and that was just the best experience. It really was. It was fantastic. Just going back to RADA for a Mm. moment, uh, how were you evaluated by the instructors there? Well, I was nearly thrown out at the end of my third term because I didn't um, crack the the check-off mid-term test at all, according to the principal. In fact, I was carpeted by the principal. Were other students cut from the program? Oh, yes, students were. So very competitive. Oh, very competitive. And evaluations were done all the time by your tutors, by your teachers. 
and I managed to survive by the skin of my teeth by producing good Shakespeare, a good, good Shakespeare test at the end of the third term. And I managed to, to, to hang on there. I was very, very young, just 17, and it was all very, very daunting. And I feel now, looking back on it, that I was very, very inhibited as an actor. I didn't know how to access emotional stuff and it was it was extremely hard for me and most of my colleagues my peers were you know in their 20s and and some of them in their 30s so I was very much the the young the baby and I was kind of struggling to survive really but once I'd sort of got over that hurdle I then went on to kind of you know make it my own and and, and make great strides and indeed in my own academic uh, education I had been a, a slow developer, so, uh, you know, I don't sort of... Cons- I mean, at the time, I was horrified that I might be thrown out of this institution that I revered so much and still do. But I did survive, and here I am. <laughs> do you think that the qualification from RADA opened doors for you in the United Kingdom? Um, because it's highly regarded in the world. It, it's highly regarded in the world. There are some people casting plays who will not touch a RADA graduate because they feel that the, they all come out with the RADA voice. Now, what the RADA voice is, I have no idea. I've yet to discover. Maybe I'm speaking in it now. I, I haven't a clue. It is revered, but, I mean, I have a BA in drama from RADA. That's never got me a job. Letters after your name will never, ever get you a job. Talent and hard work and sheer sweat will get you the job. And, of course, being in the right place at the right time. Luck plays a tremendous part in the process, but I wouldn't say that being a graduate of RADA per se has ever got me a job. I mean, people don't look at my CV and go, oh, she comes from RADA, we must give her the job immediately. It doesn't work like that. So working in repertory, were there any significant roles that you played then that uh, informed your career? Well, it's interesting because I've played in my life, parts in plays that have come round again. And one of them was Laura in The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams, which I then, many years later, went on to play the mother in, Amanda, opposite David Tennant, who was the the Doctor Who of recent fame and indeed is a crackingly good actor. He is indeed. I saw him in Hamlet in Stratford about two years ago. Marvellous, intelligent, vital, just everything you'd want from an actor. Another play that I did and played a different part in, and it is a play that has become a recurring motif in my life, is An Inspector Calls by J.B. Priestley. Again, as a young actress in repertory, I played the daughter, Sheila, in it. Many, many years later, I was to play the mother in it, on and off over a period of seven years in Stephen Daldry's production, which had come from the National Theatre in London and then toured nationally and internationally. And indeed, I've just finished a run in the West End with it. So those two, I would think, were, were, were quite significant for me. So once you'd finished your four years in rep, <laughs> then what happened? You went to London and... In those days, again, you had to have 40 weeks of professional work in the business before you could 
gain your full equity card. Up until then, you were considered a provisional member, and this was in the days when we had uh, quite a strong, a closed shop. You had to be a member of equity in order to work in the profession. Now, of course, it's an open shop, and you don't have to be a member of the union. So it was kind of the accepted route that one went before you went into television or indeed into the West End. So after that, my first West End play was Abelard and Eloise, starring Diana Rigg, or Dame Diana Rigg, as she now is, and Keith Michelle, who I understand has quite a big career over here in America. I certainly see him on television a lot in American things. And I was very much... There were 12 of us in the com- youngsters in the company, six men and six women, and I was understudying Diana and playing a small part. And it was the, the, the love story of Abelard and Eloise, and it had been written by Ronald Miller, and it toured provincially first, an out-of-town tryout, if you like, and then it came into London, into Wyndham's Theatre, where it played... On and off. It played for two years there, but I wasn't in it for two years because after six months I was promoted <laughs> through the ranks, if you like, by the management who had another play on at the Savoy Theatre called The Secretary Bird by William Douglas Hume, which had starred the late Kenneth Moore and was now into, I think, its third year of playing. And I was auditioned quite thoroughly by them and I was given the part of the, the secretary bird, the title role herself. And I played in that for 18 months. How do you sustain such a long run in a play? Well, indeed, you may well ask. At that stage, uh, 18 months was a considerable contract. It was, a, it was the standard equity contract at the time for the West End. I don't know is the answer. You You have to find a way of making it fresh and and knew every night, and as if you've, the characters just thought of those words for the first time. But in that situation, with a show that had been running for so long, it was incredibly difficult, because it did become very mechanical after a while, and certainly some of the other actors, the older actors, I would say phoned in their performances. But it was, it was very good experience. It was, it was wonderful experience, and I had a, a great time doing it but ultimately decided when my contract was up for renewal and the management asked me to, to to go on with it, I said, no, because I'm not learning anything here. I want to go back into rep and I want to take on something more challenging than this. I mean, I didn't say it you know, quite as baldly as that because they would have had a fit, but I said, no, I think I've had enough now. I just want to do something else. So I did. I went back into rep and played other things and more daring things and... and stretching myself all the time. I've always believed as an actor in pushing the envelope and just trying to make it sometimes harder, as hard as it can possibly be, to see how far you can go with something. So you really challenge yourself. Oh, I do, and I'm very, very hard on myself too. I mean, I'm the the first one to beat myself up if I don't get anything right Mm -hmm. or if I'm slow in the process or if I don't feel that other actors are getting what they need from me. And on the rare occasions when I've directed, which I have done in recent years, um, I push myself harder than my actors because I'm I'm not a natural 
director. So I, I have to work hard at that and I have to be one step ahead of the game all the time, as you very well know, being a director. Sandra, you've brought some music selections with you. Would you like to introduce your Carmina Burana one and tell us the significance of that? Yes, well, I've chosen this particular uh, music and track because it was used in the first West End show I did, Abelard and Eloise, which I've just spoken about. And it was a part of the play which was incredibly moving and I've never forgotten the music. It always haunted me night after night after night and, in fact, has become a great favourite for me. I often play it in the dressing room when I'm making up. You're listening to Profiles, and our guest today is Sandra Duncan from London, England. I'm Murray McGibbon. Well, after you had completed your sort of baptism by fire in the West End, <laughs> I believe you were invited to go to South Africa. Could you tell us how that came about? I was. I, was, I had done a play for uh, a very famous far circle, Brian Ricks, uh, who had uh, what were known as the Whitehall farces that he was very, very famous for. And one of these he was sending out to South Africa with a mainly English cast. As I had done a television for Brian Ricks and his director, Wally Douglas, they asked me to go and audition for it, which I did. And uh, it was there that I met a gentleman called Peter Turin, who is the Mr. Commercial Theatre of South Africa, and they invited me to go to South Africa to do this play. And I thought, well, why not? What year are we talking about? We're here? talking about 1974 now. And I had been working for approximately nine years in the business in London. And I suppose I just felt like another another challenge, another vista, another aspect. So I went to South Africa to do this one play with every intention of returning. And after the, the play had finished, I was due to return to London and on the eve of my return, I was asked to take over in another play at 24 hours' notice. So it meant that I sat up all night and learnt the play and did what you had to do in order to get through it. And it was a bit of a nine-day wonder, and I stayed. And so 19 years later, <laughs> I returned from, from South Africa to England. But in the meantime, a career, in my second career, which took place in South Africa was an incredibly rich and diverse and exciting time for me. And I always say that I cut my theatrical teeth there because it was so 
innovative because of all the pressures that were on South Africa at the time politically. It must have been a pretty scary proposition to go from London to the hotbed of South Africa. I mean, we're talking about the really dark days of apartheid, of apartheid riots, yes. mm. civil unrest. Can you t- talk a little bit about how the theatre survived through those turbulent times? Well, it did. It, it, it seemed to soar above it like a phoenix rising from the ashes, really. And even though there was heavy censorship within the uh, country by the government, for some reason they didn't seem to touch theatre at all. They didn't seem to think that theatre mattered. So there was an enormous amount of work that went on in the theatre, which was of great value and very informative and very vibrant theatre that the government just didn't seem to get a handle on at all and, and, and just dismissed. So there was some extraordinary work that went on during, as you say, the dark days of apartheid, and indeed during the cultural boycott which was imposed on South Africa by the rest of the world, namely the United States and the United Kingdom. And a lot of playwrights wouldn't allow their work to be done, nor would their various unions allow their their actors to travel to South Africa. If they did, they did so at their peril and without protection from their unions. So a lot of actors didn't come. So that meant that managements within South Africa looked inside the country for their leading players, whereas before they had been used to importing them wholesale from overseas. Now they couldn't do that. And that was the really, really exciting time because then you were allowed to dare and to dream and to instigate projects. And it was just... I always said it was sometimes like jumping into the deep end of a swimming pool without a flipper on because it was a bit of a sink-or-swim situation. But it resulted in some very exciting work and resulted in producing some wonderful actors and actresses of world-class calibre. There was, I think, if, if the cultural boycott did anything, it engendered an inferiority complex amongst the local South African actors and actresses because they felt they weren't good enough to be on a world stage. Well, my golly, they were. They absolutely were. And I worked with some superb, superb actors there and learned a lot from them, both in all mediums of television, film and uh, theatre. And, of course, radio was a huge staple in South Africa when I went there because they didn't have a television service when I went Television only started broadcasting in 1976. That's extraordinary. I know, it's amazing <laughs> when you think about it, isn't it? So radio was, was huge, and I, I had a wonderful time and learnt so much doing radio. And it was really tough because if you did, a, for example, a radio serial, you know, five episodes of a weekly serial, you would literally walk into the studio, pick up the scripts, go into the studio, and as we called, gash them. You would literally, you learnt to think on your feet so quickly. And, of course, it resulted in many, many funny incidents because we used to do all our own sound effects as well. There was no little man in the background doing them for us. We did them all ourselves. And I have some very happy memories of people doing extraordinary things with roller skates and buckets. <laughs> <laughs> Share with our listeners some of your experiences as an actress in South Africa, some of the, the, the major roles that you played there. Well, when I first went out there, I was what was known in a rather derogatory fashion as a West End fun maker, which meant that I couldn't act at all. 
And some years later, I was given the chance to be in a play by Pam Gems called Dusa Fish, Stas and Vi, which was at the world-famous Market Theatre in Johannesburg. And I count that as a huge highlight because it was the first time that people actually went, oh, oh, you can act then. No, we didn't think you could act before. <laughs> and I then went on to do plays like The Norman Conquests by Alan Akebourne, which was a particular joy because, again, it was a company was, that was assembled for that particular trilogy of plays and, and had a very long run. I mean, it was nearly a year altogether, so we were together for nearly a year. It was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. I did a play which I brought from London myself called Virginia by Edna O'Brien, which was about Virginia Woolf, the writer. And it was an incredibly difficult play and very esoteric, if you like, and written in the style of her own stream of consciousness when she she was writing. And I was able to take that to the then head of the market theatre and say... I'd like to do this play. And he said, it's really hard. And I said, yes, that's why I want to do it. And we, that was hugely successful. And there were many, many plays. And, of course, I got a chance to, to do quite a lot of Shakespeare there, which was, which was wonderful, one of, one of which was with you, of course, Gertrude in Hamlet. And that was a great joy to me because Shakespeare has always been a god for me and, and always will be. And I just... I just got to play a huge range of people. And again, going back to the radio, because it's radio, you can be anybody you want to be on the radio because nobody can see you. So I've played children and and the President of the United States I actually played on radio. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And all sorts of extraordinary people. And it it was just being in that environment working 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 all the time at your craft was just fantastic and a typical day would literally you would run from job to job to job and you might start with a voiceover at 7:30 in the morning and then go on into the radio studios to do the weekly serial by 8:30 in the afternoon you might be dubbing or doing voice more voiceover work and in the evening, you'd be in a theatre doing a play. So it was pretty, it was, a, it was quite a bit of a treadmill. But then you had to be versatile, you had to diversify, and that was the name of the game there. So you lived through the days of uh, Nelson Mandela's release and Indeed. the first democratic elections in South mm. Africa. Uh, did the theatrical scenario change during that handover? I felt it did. I felt that eventually the leaning towards eurocentric work and american work was was rapidly coming to an end and that it wasn't wanted anymore and i felt very very strongly that there should be south african stories told there were so many stories there was such a rich tapestry of work to be mined from the history of the country And I believed that I wasn't necessarily going to be a part of that process. And that was one of the many, many reasons that informed my leaving the country. I also wanted to go back to my own country where I considered it to be the greatest arena in the world for acting. And I wanted to test myself in that 
And again, people said, you're mad. You're giving up this wonderful career and a home and friends. And I said, well, if I don't do it now, I never will because I, I, will, I won't have the courage in a few years' time. Very brave move. We'll talk about that after your next music selection. Tell us why you've chosen Chopin's Nocturne. Well, Chopin's Nocturnes I've always found very, very soothing. And again, because I have music in the dressing room when I'm making up, it's something that I return to time and time and time again. And it's something that I started listening to when I left drama school. And I suppose it was the start of my classical music education. And I've always just found it very, very soothing. You're listening to Profiles, and our guest today is Sandra Duncan from London. I'm Murray McGibbon. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. So, Sandra, you've had uh, two careers thus far in the, the, the life of Sandra Duncan. Talk about your third career when you returned to the United Kingdom and some of the challenges that you faced having been mm. out of the country for about mm. 20 years. Well, yes, my third career started when I went back to England in 1993. And the first challenge that I immediately faced was trying to get work. The fact that I had a very, very good uh, resume from another country didn't mean anything at all. And really? No, nothing at all. Nothing. Goodness me. So 20 years' work didn't 20 really years help didn't, you didn't, when you got didn't there. register at all. And that was a great sadness to me. And also politically, it was a bit of a hot potato to have said that you've, you've come from South Africa. So suddenly, 20 years of my life almost was wiped out in terms of the work, which was a great sadness. So to get an agent, how difficult that was, writing letter after letter, submitting photograph after photograph, none of which were ever returned. Some letters were never answered. People are incredibly rude. The whole business had changed so completely since I was last working there. Why is it so important to have an agent as an actor? Because you can't move without one. They have all the access to the casting information. You can get the access to the casting information online if you want to, but you can't be seen by anybody unless you're actually put up by an agent. And it, your agent is the one who has the contacts and develops a relationship between you and a casting director. And everything is done by casting directors now. 
unless you know personally directors who will invite you personally to do a, a project, then that's, that's another route. But you cannot... Very few casting directors will accept submissions from actors without an agent's uh, say-so or, or oomph behind it or clout, if you like. So it's absolutely important. And I've been through many agents since I've been back. Some, one of them, more successful than the others. But it, it, it's a very, very personal relationship with an agent because they are representing you and your working life. And you have to get on with them. You have to have a good relationship with them. And so, consequently, I've, I've, I've moved agencies quite a lot. Hopefully, I've made my last move now because I'm very happy with the agent that I'm with. But it's, it's a very, very personal thing, as I said before. And also, they have to know where you want to go as an actor, what your goals are. If an, if an agent doesn't ask you, what do you want from your career, I would get very, very, very suspicious if they had absolutely no clue about how you functioned as an actor. And some actors do exclusively theatre, or exclusively television, or exclusively film. Very few actors go right across the spectrum because it just doesn't work that way. It can't. And, of course, it's an incredibly overcrowded profession. There is so little work for, and so many of us, jostling for it. So it's very, very, very competitive, and it can be heartbreaking at times. So you've worked outside of England uh, as well in your third career. Indeed, yes. Uh, yes. Where, where did you perform? Well, I've worked in Europe. I've worked in Vienna and at a very famous, the English-speaking theatre of Vienna. And I've worked in the Far East doing a play called The Rise and Fall of Little Voice, which was a small tour which went to Singapore, Malaysia, Bangkok, uh, Thailand and Sri Lanka. And I've been to Australia. And now I'm here in Bloomington. <laughs> so what is it like to live out of a suitcase and be on the road? It's tiring. It's ruthless. It's a little frustrating at times. But ultimately you get, you get back at, at weekends to base, particularly if you're touring within the UK, which is, which is good, which is fine. Some actors won't tour at all. They just don't like it. They can't. They don't like the life. I'm kind of fortunate in that I do quite like going to a new theatre every week and finding out the particular challenges of that theatre. And they are, there are so many different types of theatre in, in Britain that, that the chances are you'll get to play a great variety from the exquisitely beautifully designed Matcham Victorian theatres right up to very, very modern-day structures like the National Theatre. So it, it's, that's interesting. Do you enjoy travelling? Do you enjoy seeing different things in the countries you go to? Or do you simply not have very much time? Well, you don't have very much time. Your, your week is structured in such a way that, that you travel on a certain day, 
you perform on that same day, you will do X amount of matinees that week, and then on Saturday night after the show's finished, you'll pack it, everything will be packed up, and you'll get into your car and go back home again. So I, I try to do have at least one outing wherever I go, but it's not always possible. It depends, and sometimes there are rehearsals called, of course. You spoke earlier about your participation in an Inspector Calls mm. directed by Stephen Daldry. Mm. That must be a, a highlight. Oh, it's a huge highlight, a huge highlight. What makes it so special? Because the production itself is such a star and it's a very iconic production and arguably has defined British theatre in the 90s. And I've been lucky enough to be associated with it for seven years on and off now. I've done over 800 performances of Mrs Burling and people look at me aghast when I say I've done over 800 performances. So you know the words now. You've I, got them down. Well, sometimes, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they come out wrong. Um, it's just... I'm very, very passionate about it. And when I first started rehearsing it, it's rehearsed in a very, very specific way in that you are literally shoehorned into the production. You are taught the production beat by beat by beat. And if you don't conform to that form of direction, then you're lost. Now, that form of direction is very, very alien to most actors, well, every actor I, would, I can think of, because we think of rehearsals as being a very democratic, a very organic process. We all like to collaborate. We like to work together towards the, the final product. It doesn't work like that. Here you have the final product, and you're working backwards from it, if you like. So it, it can be very trying for certain actors, but if you get beyond that and you go through, as we call it, the pain barrier, then you can have a marvellous time and start flying with it and, and really enjoy it. And another great joy, of course, has been working with Stephen Daldry himself, who is, you know, in my opinion, one of the great directors of the world. And some of the listeners of this programme will know him from films like The Reader and The Hours and Billy Elliot in particular. He is an extraordinarily charismatic man and a very inspirational director and a very loving director in that he loves and respects his actors highly. And he's great fun to work with. There is something of the child about Stephen and he brings that to rehearsals with him. And he's just so extraordinary that if he asked you to do something quite bizarre, you would absolutely try it for him because you, you want to please him all the time. And he remounted the production last year for another West End run. And we had the great joy of working with him on that, although I had previously worked with him on the Australian tour. And, of course, he visits the production when it goes out on tour. He doesn't never see it. He just He does keep tabs on it. And he comes and gives notes, and those notes are always spectacularly good, as you would expect them to be. But last year, he, as he put it, recalibrated, which meant that he basically took it apart and put it back together again, which was a bit alarming from time to time, uh, because you had been doing something for so long, albeit trying to make it fresh every time. But it was it was a very fascinating process, and and, and it forced you 
to rethink stuff and to re-examine, and that was good. I, I was, it was really a very positive process. The West End of London is regarded as the ultimate destination for mm-hmm. any actor or director or mm-hmm. playwright for that matter. What is it like to work in the West End? I mean, is there some special mystique and magic about it? Well, I've decided that the West End is my spiritual home. I just want to be there all the time because it's just so exciting being in the West End. For a start, you're usually within shouting distance of another theatre, so you get to know the other actors in that theatre, whatever play they're in. And there's a lot lot of socialising that goes on between the theatres and you're forever bumping into other actors and actresses. And it is, yes, it is rather like an exclusive club for the time you're in the West End. But it's it's just a great, great experience because you're playing to international audiences. You're not just playing to Londoners or people who've just come from the suburbs. You're playing to people from all over the world. And that is very, very exciting. And I've also, I've made some wonderful friendships in the West End because of the length of time of the productions that I've done there. And that's wonderful. And there's just a sort of, although we always say this business isn't glamorous, there is a glamour attached to being in the West End, although some of the West End theatres themselves are are hardly (laughs) glamorous and very shabby backstage and not at all what you'd expect. And as we we know, the foyer space is pretty cramped and everything. But it, it it is a great experience. And any young actor or actress going into the West End for the first time must appreciate what a, what a terrific experience it is. You've had an illustrious career. Have there been any lows? Oh, gosh, yes, loads of them. Um, there have been times when I've been out of work and thought, will I ever work again? I've had parts whipped out from under my feet, as it were. Uh, when we, I've got, you know, a week into rehearsal and then the director's decided, no, I want to change the cast, and then you're out. I, I've, I've had that experience. I worked in a call centre once, which was an absolute nightmare because I'm terribly bad at it. Did you have to change your accent for that? Well, <laughs> no, I, I didn't. And I did I did change my name, but I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't change my accent and as a result was on the receiving end of a very, very rude... A telephone conversation from a man in Liverpool who thought I was sending him up and taking the mickey out of him. I don't know how actors cope with being out of work. We all have our own mechanisms for it. And it's it's one of the great comforts in my life that within the theatre profession you get such enormous support from your peers and colleagues when you're out of work, when you're you know, your your luck is not in at that time. We always say, oh, it's my turn now when, it's, when you get a job. The theatrical profession for me has provided me with some of the happiest, happiest moments in my life and some of my greatest friendships, of course, have come from, from the theatre. But they, it's also provided me with some great sadnesses and, you know, you can't get every part right. But by and large... I feel I'm very, very lucky to have survived. Have you developed a personal philosophy about this art of acting? And if so, share it with us. I like to think that every part I approach, I will find something new 
about the human condition. And I always want to be curious about acting and the human condition. I also believe that actors should have a good range and be versatile. Now, that's not always wanted uh, in my country. Casting directors tend to, particularly for television purposes, they want to put you in a box all the time, and they don't like it when you exhibit any versatility at all. But I believe that theatre acting, anyway, should be a journey of the mind and of the body as well, and that you should be able to inhabit another persona, another person, and make them real and credible. And for me, that's half the fun, is creating a completely different character. I also believe, as the great Dame Judi Dench has said, that you can never be more on stage than you are in real life. In other words, you cannot show an emotional range if you haven't actually experienced it in life. And I do I do stand by that very firmly. And there have been many times in my work when I have dug deep into the well of um, the emotional raincoat, if you like, and exposed my innermost feelings because it was applicable to the part and I had the emotional information to hand. I wouldn't dream of manufacturing that if it wasn't true, if I hadn't lived it myself. But acting for me has always been about portraying another person as truthfully as you can and bringing all the colour and all the texture that you can to that part and taking the audience on the journey with you. Every role, every play is a journey and you have to engage the audience very, very quickly and hopefully take them with you on that journey and so that ultimately at the end of the evening they will have experienced what you as a character have experienced and been touched by it, hopefully, in some way. Oh, wonderful words, particularly for our students here on the IU campus. <laughs> well, it's been a great pleasure having you on uh, Indiana University campus, Sandra. What's next for you? What's next? Well, I go back to, uh, to London and uh, I will be going straight into recording studios to record some more of my beloved audio books, which are my second string to my bow, if you like. It's, a, it's another career that I've developed in voice work and I'm very, very grateful for it. And also as we're coming up to Christmas and I'm not playing the Wicked Witch of the West in some pantomime somewhere or, or indeed in The Wizard of Oz, I, uh, it's traditionally a difficult time for straight actors, Christmas time, if you're not involved in a, a pantomime or a straight or, or a Christmas show. So uh, straight into the studio and then next year, who knows? Who knows? It's a lottery. The whole thing's a lottery. <laughs> Tell me about your final music selection, Single Ladies. Well, by Beyonce. Now, this is a lady I've recently discovered, I'm ashamed to say. I know she's been around for some time. But it was a particular track that the wardrobe mistress of an Inspector Calls and I loved very, very dearly because it would be playing on my little machine as she was strapping me into my rather vast corset and we'd both sing along to it. Well, this will be our last music selection and that will bring us to the end of this interview. Our guest today was Sandra Duncan from London, England. Sandy, thank you for spending time with us today and for sharing your thoughts and ideas about your world of theatre and with our WFIU audience. Thank you. 
I'm Murray McGibbon, and thanks for listening. program you just heard was recorded in November of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.